Welcome to Divine Truth Podcast with Dr. Stephen M. Huffman. Michael is a senior pastor with Emmanuel Baptist Church in beautiful Central Virginia. The purpose of this podcast is to teach and edify God's people through a verse-by-verse exposition of God's Word. To learn more about Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit www.ebcmineral.com. And now, here is Pastor Michael Huffman. I'd invite you to find your Bibles this morning and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter number 6. I'm beginning a brand new series with you this morning, and it's going to be entitled Avoid the Babel. And what it's going to be, it's going to be an in-depth study of the model prayer from Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 13. And after you have found that, I have respect for God's Word, if you'd please stand. Matthew chapter 9, beginning chapter 6, beginning in verse number 9. Jesus said, After this manner, therefore, pray ye, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we pray, Lord God, that you would teach us your truth now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you very much. You may be seated. In the previous portion of this great passage that we've been looking at together, Christ was indicting the prayers of the religion of Judaism. And this great passage makes a contrast between the type of prayers that God is pleased to hear and answer and the type of prayers that he does not. The kind of prayers that that come from the heart and the kind of prayers that long to know God or the kind of prayers that are just a religious show. Jesus Christ made one very crystal clear observation to the religion of the Pharisees, and that was this, that their religion was very far from God. And at the end of the day, Jesus said, all of your prayers are meaningless babble. Meaningless because what they love to do is they love to stand and pray in such a fashion where they could be seen from people, by people, and draw attention to themselves. Babble because they did not, they only used words that they were taught, but were not taught what they meant. Therefore, it was meaningless babble. One of the areas, church, that I believe is meaningless babble is when you and I pray and ask God to do something and we really do not believe God's going to do it. The Apostle Paul made this statement under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in Romans chapter 14, verse 23, he said, He that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith. And here is the point, for whatsoever is not of faith is sin. And the idea of Paul there is whatever you do, if it is not done from a heart of faith, it is sinful. Now, in Romans chapter 14, there is a specific topic. And he is addressing really as a whole matters that deal with the conscience. And in that context of Matthew 14, 
he is pointing to something and making something very clear that if someone performs a specific action and they're uh, through pressure, but they're not sure whether or not they should do it, but they do it anyway because of pressure, Paul says that is sinful. Because anything that is not done of faith is sinful. That is the specific interpretation. But the overall application of that passage, folks, is this. If we act, even in our prayers, without faith, our prayers are sinful. If we act, even in our prayers, in a manner in which we do not believe that God is really going to do what he said he was going to do, or we don't really believe God is going to do how we're praying, those prayers are sinful. And so Christ indicts, really, the hypocritical prayers of the scribes and Pharisees, and then he comes along and he repeatedly says, you, as my people, you do not pray that way. And when we come to verse 9, he makes a, he makes a contrast to the hypocritical prayers and says, but you pray this way. And then Jesus introduces to his disciples and all his followers, introduces to them a new concept of prayer. Now, before we get started looking at this prayer, there's a couple of concepts that I, that I want to go over, a couple of warnings, if you will, that I want to give you before we go on. First, do not make the mistake of calling this the Lord's Prayer. Okay? I know that you can read in books and you can even read in songs, and they call this the Lord's Prayer. However, we need to understand that is not the case. The Scriptures never record for us a time when Jesus Christ is quoted as praying this prayer. This is correctly called the model prayer, not the Lord's Prayer. Because listen, folks, the Lord's Prayer is found in John chapter 17. That's the Lord's Prayer. That is Jesus actually praying. Jesus isn't praying here in Matthew chapter 6. This is not the Lord's Prayer. Second warning that I want to give you. We are never commanded, as some have done, to pray this prayer verbatim. That would be the meaningless babble that Christ just condemned. The words of this prayer, folks, they are a skeleton on which we hang the flesh <coughs> of our prayers, adoration, and petition. Another key point that we need to understand, and that I think is missing in a lot of people's prayer lives, <coughs> prayer is a form of worship. Prayer is a form of worship. Prayer should never be something that you do just to remain in good graces with the Lord. Prayer should never be something that you do just so you can get something that you want. Prayer is a means of grace. And it is a spiritual act of worship to God. And being that prayer is a spiritual act of worship to God, what that tells us, folks, is that prayer is not a claim it, name it and claim it sort of thing. We do not pray in order to make positive confessions that lead us to being blessed. We do not pray to, to mark off something off of our daily list of chores to do. We pray as a spiritual act of worship to God because we love the one to whom we are praying. 
the kind of prayers that the believer is commanded to pray is not is the very opposite of the health and wealth prosperity prayers of the modern prosperity preachers are better called motivational liars. We do not pray so that God will have to deliver. Prayer is worship. And we need to remember that. Prayer is worship. In the model prayer, from the beginning to the end, the focus of that prayer is on God. From the beginning to the end, it does not deal with the indulgences of man, but it deals with the glory of God. Everything in this model prayer that thus should characterize our prayers revolves around who God is, what God wants, and how to bring Him the maximum glory. Jeremiah, for example, was a prophet sent from God to a rebellious and hard-hearted people. They did not want to hear the message from God through God's man. Now, they took some extreme measures. You may not want to hear some things that God says through me in this pulpit, but they took extreme measures. They threw Jeremiah in the pit. That's pretty extreme. And while Jeremiah was down in that pit, Jeremiah, a man known as the weeping prophet, notice his prayer in Jeremiah chapter 32 beginning in verse 16. He says, After I had given the deed of purchase of Baruch, the son of Nerah, then I prayed to the Lord, saying, Notice his prayer. Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your stretched out arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. Who shows loving kindness to thousands? but repays the iniquity of fathers into the bosom of their children after them. Oh, great and mighty God, the Lord of hosts is his name. Great in counsel and mighty indeed, whose eyes are opened in all the ways of the sons of men, giving to everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds, who has set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, and even to this day, both in Israel and among mankind, and you have made a name for yourself as at this day. You brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, and with a strong hand, with an outstretched arm, and with arm of great terror, and gave them this land which you swore to their forefathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. They came in and took possession of it, but they did not obey your voice or walk in your law, they have done nothing of all that you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have made all this calamity come upon them. Jeremiah, even in his humanly low estate, the preoccupation of Jeremiah's mind was to extol the glory, majesty, name, honor, and works of God. There was no preoccupation in Jeremiah's mind with his own pain. There was no preoccupation in Jeremiah's mind with his own circumstances. All Jeremiah was concerned about was the glory of God. Daniel, for example, again, was, was a prophet caught in the transition between two great world empires. Daniel was representing the people of God in a hostile, foreign, and pagan land. And Daniel says in Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 3, As I set my face unto the Lord, 
to seek by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments. And folks, again, I want you to understand the prayer of Daniel in this troubling times was a prayer attributing glory and sovereignty to God. There was no naming it and claiming it in these prayers. This was, and this is the heart, folks, of how God wants us to pray. God doesn't want us to pray and in fact commands that we not pray self-indulgent prayers. Our prayers are for the, are, are to extol the glory, the majesty, the honor, the sovereignty, the goodness, the love, the power of God. That's the purpose of our prayers. But I find that in my own life, and maybe you have as well, that my prayers are far too self-indulgent. My prayers are far less focused on the glory of God and far more focused on my own self-indulgence. We need to turn that around. We need to change that. Jesus Christ does not teach us to pray in meaningless babble. <laughs> and I want to help you understand this prayer. As we look at the magnificence of this model prayer. And what we're going to learn. Is that this prayer. Is all about. Glorifying God. This prayer is broken down into several headings. But from beginning to end, it's God's glory. It's God's glory. Our petitions are in the middle. But it starts with God's glory. And it ends with God's glory. And even in the petition, it's all about God's glory. We go from who God is at the beginning of the prayer to the glory of God's kingdom at the end of the prayer. From top to bottom, it's all about God. This is going to be an enlightening study. Number one, God's paternity. The prayer begins with God's paternity. Look at verse 9. Jesus says, after this manner, therefore, pray ye, our what? Father. Having given the example of how the religions, religion of Judaism communicated with God, or thought they were communicating with God, Jesus now informs the people on the correct way to prayer, on the correct manner of prayer. Jesus begins by teaching these people that were sitting on the, the grassy mountaintop of the Mount of Olives that prayer is a matter of direction. Now, I want you to look at the word pray. Prosuchomai in the Greek, and it's a present imperative. And this is an absolute direct comparison of the prayers of the religion of the day. Jesus says, given that it's a present imperative, he says, you are to continually pray this way. 
And being that the command is second, second person, we would add the pronoun, the, the pronoun you. And Jesus would say, you are to continually pray this way. Folks, listen, not only is prayer not an option, but the way that you pray is not an option either. You, therefore, are to pray this way. This is a direct command from the mouth of God on how God's people should pray. And it contains a positive and it contains a negative. But I want you to understand this and remember this as you look throughout this whole prayer. That prayer is about the majesty of God. Notice the address. Our Father, which art in heaven. Now, unfortunately, a lot of times we read that and we just keep on going. We really don't stop to think about that. I know I'm guilty. But this is probably, folks, one of the most direct addresses that is used. And rightly so, because this is the address, this is the pattern that was given by Christ. Folks, listen, you and I have been given the amazing privilege of calling God our Father. Think about that. We've been given the amazing privilege of calling God our Father. By faith, we are called the children of God. In John chapter 1, verse 12, Jesus said, But as many as received him, to them gave he the power or the right or the authority to become the sons of God. In Romans chapter 8, verse 14, the Apostle Paul says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. And Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 for ye are the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, folks, by faith we come to God in prayer as his beloved children. You know, just by way of comparison, whenever Jesus Christ prayed, he always referred to God as his father except one time. There was only one time where Jesus Christ did not address God as his father, and that was when he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he was on, when he was in that moment of separation, when he took upon himself the sins of all of his people, it was at that moment and that moment only in that great gulf of separation that Jesus did not refer to God as his father. The Greek word for father, for father is there, pater, but Jesus Christ didn't speak in Greek. Jesus Christ spoke in Aramaic. And so the Aramaic form of the, of the Greek word pater, father, would be the word Abba, which means daddy, daddy. In fact, Christ used this combination of both father and daddy. In Mark chapter 14, verse 36, he said, and he said, Abba, father, daddy, father. The apostle Paul also used that combination in Romans chapter 8, verse 15, where he says, we have not received the bondage, the spirit of bondage again to fear, but we have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, what, church? Abba, Father. Listen, church, we, you, if you're a Christian this morning, you have been adopted into the king's family, and you can look at the Father and say, Daddy. Not only are you invited to address him that way, folks, but you are actually commanded to address him that way. Just think. We've been given the awesome privilege 
of referring to the Creator God as our Daddy. And folks, listen, that's not a mode of, of uh, irreverence. That's what Jesus called God. And that's what He invites us to call God. Our Creator, our Father, our Dad. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, again, the Apostle Paul said, And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his, of his son in your hearts, crying one. Daddy. Father. You have the absolute privilege, the absolute honor to go to the holy, sovereign creator as your dad. Let me tell you something. There's no other religion in the world that has that privilege. Buddhists are never invited to go to Buddha and call him daddy. Muslims are never invited to go to, to uh, Allah and refer to him as daddy. But Jesus says, when you pray, you don't pray like the hypocrites do, wanting to stand in street corners and in the synagogues so that they can be seen to people. You don't pray like the hypocrites through their meaningless repetition doesn't mean anything. This is how you pray. Yeah. Yeah. Now I sat in my thinking chair this week and thought and coughed. And I began to think about what, what does it do for us that God is our dad. I, I, I don't know about you folks, but that's unfathomable to me. And, and, and I knew that, and I knew some of these things, but as I studied them, they were all brand new. This is, this is amazing to me that the creator, the sovereign creator, the perfect holy God invites and yes, commands me to call him dad. If that wasn't great enough, I came with a list of Five or six things off the top of my head that, that kind of adds to that beauty. Number one, the fact that we can call God our dad. Listen, church, removes all fear. Removes all fear. The pagans always fear their God. You can read Roman or Greek mythology, whichever you choose to read. And what, one thing you'll notice is that the, is that the ones that followed all these gods, they were, they lived in constant fear these gods. If you went out as a fisherman and you did not have a good catch and came home empty-handed or went out into the sea and got caught in a storm, it was because Poseidon was mad at you. And that's how these people lived. And they never referred to their gods as followers. But as followers of Jesus Christ, we have been given the immense privilege to refer to God as our Father. And if God is my father, what am I to fear? If God is my dad, what am I to fear? I like what the psalmist said in Psalm 103, verse 13. Like a father pitieth his children. What's the next three words? So the Lord. Isn't that good? Like a father pitieth his children. So the Lord. Because the father-child relationship takes all fear out. But not only does the child-father relationship take all fear out, but it also settles uncertainties and gives hope. Though. God is my father. God is my dad. 
and I'm commanded to address them that way. Therefore, I have hope. I have hope. You know, if an earthly father will spare no effort to protect his children, how much more will your heavenly father love, protect, and help you? Jesus put it this way, Matthew chapter 7, verse 11. He says, if ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father, which is in heaven, give good things to them that ask? There's no father here in this auditorium that would not protect his children with his very life. If you, being evil and sinful, would do that for your child, Listen to me. How much more will your heavenly Father, who is not simple, but who is lovingly perfect, protect you? I don't know about you, but that gives me hope. That gives me hope. That settles the uncertainty. God is my dad. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 29, My Father which gave them me is greater than all. Get this. And no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. That gives me hope. That settles uncertainty. In John chapter 14, verse 21, he, hath, he that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and get this, and will manifest myself to him. That gives me hope. That settles any uncertainty in my life because God, God, is my dad. And again, I want to emphasize, that's not irreverent. That's how Jesus addressed God. That's how Jesus addressed the Father. As daddy. God is my dad. That removes all fear. That removes uncertainty. But number three, it also removes loneliness. These are just things I, I spring, springboard off my head. It also removes loneliness. You know, when you feel rejected by family and friends and even other believers, you still have a daddy. You still have a father. In Psalm 68, the gang of verse 5 says he's a father of the fatherless. A judge of the widows is God in his holy habitation. God setteth the solidarity in families. He bringeth out those which are bound with chains. But the rebellious will dwell on the dry land. You're never alone, church. You're never alone when God is your father. You're never alone when God is your dad. And Jesus says, you pray this way. Dad, here I am. Here I am. Here I am, dad. I don't think my children ever feared coming and asking me anything. I'm not going to ask them now because I don't want to be embarrassed. But I don't think my children ever feared coming and asking me anything unless they already knew they were in trouble. And I can remember so many times walking in the home and one of the boys comes running up to me or sometimes all five of them and they look up at me and they say, Hey, Dad, we got a question. My, my phone will ring. I'll be sitting at my desk. My phone will ring, and, 
And I've got a nickname for Mark. It appears on my phone. Uh, Big Daddy. Big Daddy's calling. And I'll say, hello. He'll say, Dad. Hey, Dad. Rex will call me on the phone. Super duper trooper. <laughs> I say hello. Hey, Dad. That question. And even with me being evil, never get tired of hearing, hey, Dad. Your Heavenly Father never gets tired of hearing, hey, Dad. It's me again. You're invited to pray that way. You're commanded to pray that way. And it takes away all loneliness when God is your dad. But it also settles a matter of selfishness. Because what's Jesus say? Our Father. That's plural. Our Father. It's just not a matter of my Father. It's our Father. We share the same Dad. Therefore, we ought to get along with each other. We share the same Dad. There's no singular pronouns in this entire prayer. But it also, fifth, it also settles a matter of resources. Our Father, who is in where? Heaven. All of the resources of heaven are yours because you trust your heavenly supplier. What Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, where he says that God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Number six, God's fatherhood also settles the matter of obedience. Listen, folks, if Jesus Christ, the true Son of God, came to earth to fulfill the Father's will, as he said in John chapter 6, verse 38, I did not come to do my will, but came to do the will of him that sent me. How much more should we, as his adopted children, obey his will? Obedience to God is the supreme mark of our relationship with Him as children. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 50, Whosoever does my Father's will, that's the person that's my brother, sister, and mother. The one that obeys my will. But yet the Father in His magnanimous grace and mercy forgives and restores the disobedient child, doesn't He? Why? Because He's your dad. Because He's your dad. You know, my boys, when they lived at home, they, they, they would come to me and they'd messed up. Especially Mark. Not that Mark especially messed up, but Mark was especially emotional about it. Mark was fountainized and Mark was very emotional about it. And Mark, Mark would, Mark would call me on the phone or, or, or get me at home and would come a lot of times with tears rolling down his face and, 
And he would always preface the confession with one word. What do you think that word was? Huh? Daddy. And he would begin to confess. I was always faithful to restore Mark. And your heavenly father will always be faithful to restore you because he is your father. He is your father. If there's one lesson that the parable in Luke 15 teaches us is that God will restore the self-righteous just like he will restore the one who went away and came back. Because he is your father. He is your dad. And you and I have the awesome honor and privilege to address God, the omnipotent creator of everything, as father. What an honor. What an honor. What an honor to, to address God. What an honor to be able to come to the throne of grace with the confidence that the sovereign Lord is our heavenly father. So we pray. It's personal, folks. It's personal. Your prayers are personal. He is your dad. He is your father. Don't address him as some distant cosmic force out there in the universe. He's your father. And your relationship with him will be a whole lot better when you recognize the fact that he is your dad. Not just here, but you really see God as your father, as your supplier, as your dad. Do you see God like that? Do you see God as your father? Jesus says, Don't pray like don't pray like the hypocrites. You pray this way. Daddy. Daddy. Because he is. Your father. What a loving way to start a prayer. Dad.